Good morning. Good to be here with you today. I will say, I think there has been some disappointment in my lack of dad joke content lately, some of my more recent sermons. I think that because some people have told me directly that they've been disappointed. Uh, But despite the intense public pressure, I will not be ruled by the mob. I'm not going to cave in. So there will be no dad jokes in this morning's sermon either. Sorry about that. Instead, I'm going to uh, start with an illustration, a story. So the other night, uh, me and Ashley, my wife, we had put our kids to bed. We were both kind of just relaxing in the living room. Uh, she was watching a show, and I was on my phone, and I decided to get on Facebook, which, to be honest, is usually a mistake uh, because I usually don't get off of Facebook in a better mood than when I got on, especially these days. But I got on Facebook, and I was scrolling mindlessly, as you do, and I came across a meme. Now, if you don't know what a meme is, this is probably you. (laughs) And just another, for example. And one more, just because. This, this meme comes up if you Google Christian memes. I had to throw one of those in for us because we're at church. Anyway, back to my story. I always have to look because that can't be up behind me while I'm preaching. No one will take me serious. Back to my story. So I came across this meme, and to be honest, I knew immediately it was going to be very controversial, uh, and re- frankly, it was pretty offensive. Um, and th- this guy who posted it, he's, a, I guess, a guy I knew in high school. Um, we weren't really even friends back then, but for some reason, we're friends on Facebook. And um, I knew, it w- like I said, it was going to be controversial, so naturally, I clicked on the comments because I wanted to read. And uh, there was one particular thread that was really long that stood out to me, so I clicked on it, and it was a, a, a back and forth between the guy who posted it and then somebody else that I guess he knows, but it doesn't appear that they're super good friends. Um, And it started off well with a little back and forth on kind of the issue of the meme. Um, And at the beginning, they were both kind of just giving their opinions and using logic and reason and all the things to to discuss. Uh, But it took a turn pretty quickly. Um, There was some serious name-calling and uh, swearing, and um, it, it got very personal as well. Um, Because like I said, I guess these guys knew each other. Uh, It was kind of bizarre. Like one guy was was just dogging on the other guy's job, and then the other guy was accusing him of not paying his taxes, which I don't know. And both of them were like really critical of of each other's choices in vehicles. Uh, It was very, very specific um, in in public. Uh, And like I said, it wasn't a pretty sight. But I feel, though, and the reason I bring that up is I feel like uh, that's the sort of thing that I'm seeing a lot more these days. And I, I don't know about you, but I can just feel this, the tension and the anger in our society right now. Um, there's a real feeling of just unrest. And people, I think they, they seem to be taking sides 
right? It, declaring their allegiances one side or the other on everything, anything that you can think of. No one agrees on anything. Everyone has a very strong opinion and they know that they're right. It's politics, it's coronavirus, it's masks or no masks, it's Black Lives Matter, you name it. There's just a lot of animosity between people right now. And we live in a culture where if you make a mistake, you are now a, a throwaway person. Cancel culture, as it's called. If someone disagrees with you now, they're, they're not just wrong, uh, but they're a bad person. That's kind of the attitude a lot of people have. And there's so much judgment and hate from people on, on both sides of any issue. And I tell you, there seems to be very little empathy, very little love going around from people these days. But that's our society, right? Like, that's them out there. That's not us. That's certainly not Christians, right? We're, we're different, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case right now. I see a lot of Christians who look like everybody else right now. Christians who are supposed to be, according to the Bible, known for their love. That's what we're supposed to be known for, our love. Is the church known for its love right now in 2020 as you sit here today? I don't know. Unfortunately, I think to a lot of people, the church is known for its hate, or at least people they know who are Christians for their hate. And I'll have to say, uh, there is a good deal of that that's unearned and not fair, because we also live in a world where if you say that sin is wrong, then uh, you're a hater. But I do think some of that is earned, that reputation. Sometimes I feel like I hardly recognize Christians so many hateful Christians out there, people that, that I know are born-again believers that I've, I've known from my past or from, from now. And I've been so disappointed lately reading the, the comments and the posts of, of Christians who, they're just hateful in their words. I've been disappointed in some of the conversations I've had with Christians and the, hateful in the way they talk to people, hateful in the way they think about people. And I feel like I've seen such a lack of compassion and care from Christians. And you know that is not what the Bible teaches, right? We know that. So today's message is titled, Where is the Love? Where is the Love? So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22, Jesus' words. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, going through verse 40. And Jesus, um, as he does sometimes, he has a way of making things very clear and very plain and to the point. He has a way of simplifying, and so I think that is what we're going to see this morning. Before I start to read the text, um, let me give you just a little bit of background to set the scene of where we're picking up here. So Jesus, he's made his way down from Jerusalem. Uh, he's just days away, actually, from being arrested and crucified. At this point, his fame has really grown because he's been going around doing Jesus things. Uh, he's been healing people and doing miracles, and his reputation uh, has really grown. 
And he's been identified as a problem by the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees. So these Jewish leaders, they've been plotting against Jesus. And where we pick up here is they are scheming on how they can try and catch him slipping by asking him some, some difficult questions, or what they perceive to be difficult questions, even trick questions. So Jesus, he's in the temple, and if we were to go back a little bit further than we're going to start in chapter 22, you're going to have kind of three, three encounters. We're going to pick up on the third. But the first one, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask him about paying taxes. And Jesus' response, he gives the quote that we refer to sometimes, to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God." And they're astonished, and they're basically shut down. And then you have the Sadducees, and they come, and they ask him about this kind of made-up scenario um, about uh, marriage and the resurrection, and he shuts them down. And then that's where we pick up in our text today. The Pharisees, they've come back for one last time, and they're going to kind of make another attempt at it. So picking up in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we start out, we've got this lawyer who's a Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus. And he's, he's not a lawyer in the sense that we would normally think of a lawyer. He is a law expert uh, who is actually an expert in the Jewish law. And he asks Jesus this question, and remember, it's to test him, we're told. This question, it's, it's designed to trap Jesus into saying the wrong thing. They're not really looking for a real answer on this question. And he says, which is the great commandment in the law? Or some translations say the greatest, which I think works well. So wh- when he says the law, he's talking about the Jewish law that's found in the Torah, which was kind of the standard of how they would be trying to live their lives, these Jewish leaders. And this isn't a very easy question because there were 613 commandments of the Torah, 365 negative and 248 positive, so a lot of choices. But this question, it is relevant to the Pharisees. Now remember, they are legalists in the ultimate sense of the word. They were all about living by and enforcing the law for themselves and for others. And just because of the sheer amount, 613 of commandments, these Jewish leaders, they would spend time trying to kind of rank them, trying to prioritize them uh, from the most important on down so that they could knock out as many as possible underneath by obeying the ones on top. So what he's really asking is, which is the most important or the weightiest commandment? And then Jesus answers, Now, I think it's worth pointing out that Jesus actually gives a direct answer to the question. This is not what we see all the time when Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees. A lot of times he would rebuke them, he would uh, answer a different question, or he would answer with a parable. 
But in this question, I think Jesus must have, have thought that it was an important enough question that he gave a direct answer. So his answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So this is a quotation from the Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You may be somewhat familiar with the Shema. It starts like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord our God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So the Shema, it's actually recited as a prayer twice a day by Jewish people. So very important. When I was in seminary, I was in a Hebrew class, and our professor had us uh, recite the Shema at the beginning of each class uh, in Hebrew. Uh, I was always the guy who was kind of lip-syncing it, like uh, just mouthing because I didn't really know it too well. Um, there were a lot of better students at my particular seminary than me, I have to say. Uh, and sadly, it's been a while, and I don't remember very much of it either, so don't ask me to say any of it. But it's a, it was a very important thing um, to the Jews of that time and even now. And so he gives them that answer, but then he goes on a step further, and he, he volunteers the second. He says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this can be found in Leviticus 19. That's where that comes from. And then in verse 40, Jesus, he then justifies his choice. He gives a reason why he's chosen these two commandments. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, first, when he says the law and the prophets, that's just a way of referring to the, the whole of the Old Testament all of the scriptures that they would have had at the time. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So these two commandments, they encompass all of the Old Testament law. In other words, if you will keep these two commandments, by doing so, you will keep all the rest of them. They're foundational. It makes logical sense, right? Because if... It, if you truly love the Lord, you will have no other gods before him. You will worship him. You will obey him. If you truly love your neighbor, you will not sin against him. You will not kill him. You will not steal from him. You will not covet what he has, and on and on and on. So while it's true that we no, long, we no longer live under the old covenant, we're under the new covenant, I want to put forward to you today that this is still a very important command from Jesus for us as Christians today. Because when Jesus, when he spoke these words, he was identifying how we are to live holy lives before God in the most basic way. Have you ever heard of the KISS principle? K-I-S-S? -S? Keep it simple, stupid? I don't know if you can say stupid in church, but I just did. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's keeping it simple. He, said, he says, God's big picture desire for your life, how he wants you to live, is for you to love God and for you to love people. Everything else will fall underneath that. Everything else will go to support that. Love God, love people. So let's talk about those two. Loving God, loving people. We're going to spend most of our time actually on the second, loving your neighbor as yourself. 
but I do want to spend just a bit of time at the, at the front end on loving God because it is obviously important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, and your mind. Heart, soul, and mind. Now, we could, we could break down those three. Um, there's a whole really good sermon that would come from that. But the, the point is this. You are to love the Lord with your entire being. With every part of your makeup, you are to love the Lord. There's no room to compartmentalize yourself. There's no room for you to hold back little pieces of yourself from your God. He wants it all. He wants all of you. This is the greatest and foremost thing that God has commanded. Love God with everything that you are. And then, love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, but before we break down really what that means, I want to make sure that we see this truth, okay? And, and that's this. It is extremely important to God that we love people. It's really important to God that we love people. You know, the, the very fact that Jesus answered this question tells us something. He did, it tells us he didn't reject the premise. It tells us that there are some commandments that are more important than others, that are more foundational than others. Think about it too. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? One. Which one? So Jesus gives that answer, but then he feels the need to continue on and gives the second greatest, which he says is like it. I think that's important. Now, you probably, if you're like me, you're not surprised that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord. That makes sense. I can get on board with that. That seems pretty foundational to being a Christian. But of all the things that the Bible tells us to do, all the actions that we would think about that really please the Lord, that make Him happy, the most important after loving God, according to Jesus Himself, is loving people. It's number two. And the scriptures, they actually have a lot to say about that, right? If you've read your Bible much, there's a lot in the scriptures about love. You guys familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13? That's the love chapter in the Bible. That one that's always used at all the weddings. Here's what Paul has to say about love in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read the first part to you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Did you hear that? Wow. He says, if, if I've got the power to speak in tongues and even in the tongues of angels, which is hyperbole, but I don't have love, I'm just making noise. If I've got the power of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, and I can see the future, and I've got all the wisdom and understanding in the world, 
And if I've got faith big enough to move mountains, but no love, I am nothing. If I give everything I have to those in need, and my faith carries on to the point where I am martyred, but I have no love, I gain nothing. Those are strong words. I mean, look at this, the, these descriptions. These are the things that we strive for, right? The things that we wish we were as Christians when we think about our faith. Definitely things that if, if, if we were described by this, we would feel like we were fighting the good fight, right? Like if, certainly if people around us saw us and that was our representation, they would say, man, that guy's got his faith together. God must be very pleased with him. But Paul says, none of it matters if I don't have love. It doesn't matter. If I serve the church and the kingdom of God, absent of love for people, it counts for nothing. Church, loving people matters. It certainly matters to God. I hope it, I, I pray that it matters to us. It should be a, a focus in our lives. Because you can have all the other areas of your faith on point, but if you've got no love in your heart for others, you missed it. You could be the most disciplined and principled Christian in the world, but if you hate people, you're doing it wrong. If you treat people poorly, you're doing it wrong. If you don't have care and compassion for others, you're missing it. That's what the scriptures tell us. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so, okay, Noah, it's important. Got it. <laughs> but what does that mean, love your neighbor as yourself? Well, if, if you're like me, I read that and I've got some questions. Let's start with the first, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, I think it would be easy for us when we read this to think neighbor is someone that you know, someone that you're close to, maybe someone that you like, enjoy being around. Maybe it's a friend or a brother. The good news is, is we don't actually have to guess at this. In Luke chapter 10, which is another account of this story, Jesus is asked that question, who is my neighbor? How convenient for me. <laughs> and he answered, his answer to that question, who is my neighbor, he answered that by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you guys remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Here's the Cliff Notes version for you. So in the parable, there's this Jewish man, and he's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And along the way, he's met by a group of robbers. And they beat him mercilessly. They strip him of his clothes. And as the parable says, they leave him half dead. So he's in bad shape. And throughout the story, three people, they, they cross by. They see this man, but only one of them stops to help and to render aid. So first comes a priest he sees him, he crosses to the other side of the road, and he passes on. And then we have a Levite. He sees him, crosses to the other side, and he passes on. 
Finally, we get to the Samaritan. And this man, he sees this Jewish man, and he has compassion for him. He goes to him, he renders aid, he, he bandages his wounds, as we're told. He feeds him, and then he takes him to the inn. And he pays out of his own pocket the innkeeper to take care of him until he can return. So in answering the question, who is my neighbor, we've got this act of compassion between a Samaritan and a Jew. And if you know your biblical history, you know that Jews and Samaritans, well, they're not best friends. They didn't want really anything to do with each other. There were some serious religious and racial divides between these two groups of people. But that's the image we're given of our neighbor. Jesus will take this a step further, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches that we should love our enemies. He says, you've heard that it's said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy and pray for him. So, who is my neighbor? Well, it seems to me, if we look at all of Jesus' teaching, that our neighbor is really anybody that we would come in contact with. People who are like us or people that are extremely different from us. Your neighbor is your brothers and sisters in Christ, your City Life community group members, your pastors, your family, your friends, your actual neighbor is your neighbor too. But your neighbor is also that person who's in front of you at the grocery store. Your neighbor is the person who's next to you in the car at the red light. Your neighbor is that rude hostess at the restaurant. Your neighbor is that, that guy at work that you really just don't like very much. Your neighbor is that person on Facebook that always posts those offensive memes that are against your beliefs. That's your neighbor. Anyone around you, that is your neighbor. And you are commanded to love that person, to love them. So my second question then, when I look at this, is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to love my neighbor? I think two words that really give us a good description, and that's as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two words, but there's a lot packed in there. It means this, in the same way that you love yourself, so love your neighbor, in the same way. So the, the, the basis for this command that we have to love our neighbor is our self-love. Jesus doesn't have to command that we love ourselves. He just assumes it. Notice that. Love of self. Now, I'm not talking about like loving yourself in the cheesy self-help kind of way where it's like, well, you know, I'm just really working on loving myself right now, you know, getting better at that. Like, that's not what Jesus means when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. No, he, he knows that all of us have a natural instinct of self-preservation. We all want to have shelter and food and clothes. We want to be safe. We want to be secure. He knows that, that we all want to make ourselves happy instead of miserable. 
We all want friends. We want to have meaningful relationships with people. We want to feel joy instead of pain. We want to be fulfilled. We want to have meaning and purpose in our lives. And it kind of boils down to this. We want good things for ourselves. It's basic. So, as you love yourself in the same way, love your neighbor. And that means a lot. As you desire good things for yourself, so desire good things for your neighbor. As you want to be safe, as you want to have a nice place to live, so also desire that they be safe and have a nice place to live. As you want to be fed when you are hungry, so also desire that your neighbor will be fed when they are hungry. As you want to be happy, desire that your neighbor will be happy. As you want friendships and meaningful relationships, so also desire the same for them. Be a meaningful friend to them. As you seek to give your life purpose and meaning, so also seek the same for them, that their life would have meaning and purpose. Desire the same good for them that you desire for yourself. Now, this is more than just having a feeling or just what you, what you think. When the Bible talks about love, which it does often, almost every time we see that love being proved out in action. And how that works itself out in action is this. As you pursue and work for these good things for yourself, so also pursue and work for these good things for your neighbor. With the same conviction and passion and gusto that you pursue these good things for yourself, with the same conviction and passion and gusto, pursue those things for your neighbor. That's not an easy command, folks. It's really not. I have to say, I had an excellent example of this growing up. I think my family lived this in front of me pretty well. When I was growing up, we certainly didn't have a lot of money, but my family, they, they never shied away from helping people. I can remember countless times where my, my mother would give a ride to someone, to work or to wherever, where we'd provide a meal or, or, or child care. And sometimes it was people from our church, but a lot of times it wasn't. Sometimes it was people that we knew, but a lot of times it wasn't. My dad was an example to me, too. If you know my parents, you know that my dad's a little quieter than my mom is. Uh, most are, to be fair. My mom's like me. She's got more words. But my dad would love people by serving them. Mowing a lawn, helping someone move, staying behind to clean up at church. They didn't, I don't think they knew that I was going to talk about them today, so sorry about that. But it seemed like people who were in need always seemed to find our family when I was growing up. It was a regular thing for kids who had just questionable home lives that they would be in our home a lot that they would come for dinner and they would stay longer and stay the night and they wouldn't want to go back. 
I think my mom, she was often on the other end of that phone call when someone is in crisis or just really going through a difficult time. And, and she was often the person there to listen and to, to offer prayer. And that love for people, that, that serving of people, almost always led to opportunities to do the most loving thing possible, which was to share the gospel with them. If you are a Christian, the ultimate picture of loving someone and wanting what is best for them is to introduce them to the one who saved you. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. But that's tough still, isn't it? If everything is true, what I just described, that is not an easy thing. Ask yourself, is that the picture of your heart as you sit here this morning? Desiring and pursuing for others the same good that you desire and pursue for yourself. Ask yourself, what do you desire for other people? Oh, how often I think the opposite is true, unfortunately. I think if we're honest, sometimes we secretly hope that people around us wouldn't be doing as well as us so we could feel better about ourselves. How often do we see our neighbor as our competition, even when they're really not competing against us in anything tangible? How often do we pay no attention to someone else and their situation when our own is going well? How often is that true of us? What would it look like for you to love your neighbor as yourself? For you to want good things for your neighbor in your context, for you to want good things for them just as much as you want them for yourself, for you to be concerned with their condition so much that you pursue good things for them with the same passion you pursue the good things for yourself. What would that look like? All right, I have a, a quick note, something I want to bring up before I move on. And uh, I, I just, I'll say from the outset, I'm about to step up on my soapbox. So I'm already on stage, but just imagine there's a smaller box here. I'm getting on it now, okay? Here's what I want to say. Loving people also extends to your digital interaction with people. Loving people also extends to your digital interaction with them. I really do believe most of the time we don't find it as hard to love someone or to at least find common ground with them when we can see them face to face. When, when, when we, we can't look someone in the eyes, though, something happens and people, they get nasty. But in an age where so much of our discussion has moved to a digital platform, in a time where so much of your persona publicly is represented by what you do online, Christians, it is so important that you apply this command there as well. So important. I tell you, the things I see people say to each other from behind keyboards are just terrible, like I said in my intro. And you, you, you may be listening or be here this morning and you find yourself with a tendency to want to justify. To want to say things like, well, love is nice, but I, I'm more concerned with the truth 
than I am with people's feelings. But what you're really saying is that my pride necessitates that I always be right. I'm more concerned with that than my biblical mandate to love my neighbor as myself. People, truth can be delivered in love. The scriptures tell us that. You need to remember that there is another person on the other end of that comment or post that you just left. Be kind. It's a shame that it has to be said. Be kind. And this is strong, but if you can't love people online, get offline. Get off of it. Because you are damaging the reputation of Christ in the church. That's hard to say because I love you guys. I do pray this, though. I pray that we would consider what it looks like to love people from our virtual platform. On, on the flip side, because the opposite can be so profoundly true. Your, your online presence can be such a powerful tool for you to love people. It really can. Think of the amount of people that you can reach Think of the, the people that you can, can love on that are nowhere near you. And what if we took the time to listen to people too? Our, our, even our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that they've got a different opinion than us or a, a different political view. If we took the time to listen and to not be divided over things that are not as great as the gospel, wouldn't that be the kind of countercultural thing that Christians are called to? Right? I think it would be. I think it would definitely stick out because that's not what's going on online. All right, I'm climbing down from my, so- my soapbox now. I'm off of it. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, I do want to point out one last thing that I, I think it's really important and I don't want you to miss. I'm afraid that if you don't hear this, you're going to try to white-knuckle your way into loving people that, to be honest, are just very difficult to love sometimes. People are hard to love sometimes, and you're going to try to do it under your own power. So here's something I want to point out right from our text. The relationship between loving God and loving people is there. Jesus says that the second is like the first. There is a relationship between the two. And for that reason, the two, they shouldn't be separated in your mind. So hear this. We cannot love others without loving God first. We cannot love other people without loving God first. We can fake it really well for a while, but guaranteed, we're always going to fall short of true biblical love if we don't first love the Lord. If God is not our ultimate love, our ultimate love will be ourselves. And selfishness will rule our lives when our ultimate love is ourselves. But on the flip side, when the first commandment happens, loving God, The second, 
loving others will naturally just flow out of there. Not that it will be easy, but it will flow. Loving people is born out of loving God with all of your being, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It comes from abiding in the Lord, living in relationship with Him, making Him the the object of your desires. And it is enabled supernaturally because it has to be by the Holy Spirit. Something else to notice is this. A wholehearted love for God helps us to see people the way God sees them. Which is that they are broken sinners who are in need of a Savior. Just like you and I. So, As we leave today, my prayer is that we would do what Jesus says and we would keep it simple. That we would focus our pursuits on loving God with all that we are and on loving our neighbor as ourselves. And that no corner of our lives would be untouched by those commandments. That's my prayer today.